it's pointless for the literary world to continue to act as if debunking some idea that occurs in an 18th or 19th century novel is going to have any noticeable social impact. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Well, last time we were talking all about the election right. and got into some political language, and I ended thinking about the term politically correct. There's another one that's sort of sprung up pretty much in my lifetime. We didn't used to talk about politically correct language. Yeah, this really evolved in the 1970s. It's not that the two words weren't ever used together before that, but um, a lot of people who try to analyze the term politically correct in its history make the mistake, I think, of confining their searches to the two words being used together. And what you find with that is that most of the early uses are denigrating people who hold politically correct ideas. So it's an ironic phrase. It's sarcastic. But I think you really need to isolate the word correct. Mm. In very rigid uh, Marxist circles, there was a tendency back in the 40s, 50s, 60s to describe orthodox state-mandated ideology as being correct, the correct line, and anything that deviated from that as being incorrect. And of course, this goes back to the Marxist notion that uh, socialism and communism and the ideology surrounding them can be scientifically founded, that there is a, an absolute truth. Um, Marx thought he had discovered that the direction of human uh, social evolution was inevitably in the direction of socialism, uh, so that if to you correctly understood uh, what is really going on, instead of being deluded by your class biases into thinking differently, you would understand the truth. There's always been a, a tendency to fall back on that in leftist circles. The anarchists, of course, are always fighting on the other side. Uh, and trying to question everything. And, and, of course, they are the ultimate politically incorrect types from the Marxist point of view. But um, if you looked at Mao, for instance, his notions of correctness and incorrectness are very, very dominant. I think it was that context, uh, rather than some earlier uses of the phrase politically correct, that led to its evolution in the 70s. There were uh, positive uses of it. Uh, Wikipedia has one um, in a, a quote, uh, Tony Cade Bambara saying, a man cannot be politically correct and a male chauvinist too. And I think she was using that in the same way that uh, traditional leftists had talked about correctness, although, of course, she was not a Stalinist or a Maoist, but it, it was influenced. But very quickly, People who wanted to criticize the new left began to mock them. If you were in favor of, um, oh, well, in favor of women's rights or in favor of affirmative action, uh, then you were being politically correct. 
the women's movement in particular is important here because they put a lot of focus on language and the uses of how do you refer to women, what kind of terms you use, and of course the great battle over MS period versus MRS period and, and the use of Ms. And I don't think, I've never heard anybody say Ms. is more politically correct who is advocating for it. At that point, uh, people who, who began were resistant to the MS uh, abbreviation began referring to their opponents as wanting to be politically correct. And then that broadened tremendously until now we have this phenomenon of people feeling that they can say anything uh, insulting and anything that offends other people, and then if you criticize them for doing so, then they come back at you by saying you're being politically correct. So it's become entirely an insult, um, and nobody ever uses it in a positive form, saying, yes, I, I think we should be politically correct. So that's become quite transformed. And Bill Maher used it to his advantage in naming one of his programs right. politically incorrect. That'll draw in the crowds, and um, there's a, quite a sort of intuitive sense of, well, you want to be correct. You want to be right, right? I mean, it's, it's good to be correct, but in this case, it demonizes that. I think that um, in its original uses, it was meant to suggest that your opponents are Stalinists, that they follow a rigid, ideological, and abhorrent line of thought. I think that has been lost. Um, I don't think... People are at all aware of the leftist controversy surrounding the notion of correctness, but it's just become totally unmoored from its roots and become just another insult the way the liberal did. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked about political correctness in a talk you delivered upon your retirement, and you've let me uh, read through your this interesting speech that you gave. So. I'd like to dig a little deeper into that and what your involvement was with the politically correct movement of the 60s. You were obviously you were at uh, Washington State University. You had just arrived in the 60s and you were a professor of English literature. That's quite a confluence of time and place and um, career <laughs> to be thrown into the middle of all of this because it seems like that was the center of it. And I was only 26 years old. <laughs> Perfect. I had much more in common with the students and uh, my political activities and the attitudes than I did with most of the faculty. What was your experience with that upon arrival and as you saw things evolving quickly? Well, I had first gotten really interested in, as a political issue, nuclear war as a subject. And I was, of course, a little older than the student activists that I hung out with. And my awareness of this, what really troubled me, was uh, surrounding the uh, nuclear bomb testing, the arms race, um, the building of air raid shelters in the 50s and, and all that kind of thing. The Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, uh, those loomed very large in my mind. And so those were big issues. But when I arrived at WSU in 1968, the big issue was the Vietnam War. And at that point, I was really concerned to see, is there some way we can talk about the arms race in this context? And that was not of interest. Um, the whole threat of nuclear Armageddon just didn't ring a bell at all. 
with the younger generation of activists um, because they were more interested in, in the, the horrors of jungle warfare where the United States had absolute technical supremacy but seemed to be losing on political grounds in Southeast Asia. And China at that point was not viewed as being a, a tremendous power, although a lot of politicians confused Russia and China with each other, even though the two really had a very bitter divorce quite a long time earlier. But I was interested, of course, in uh, the battle for civil rights on the parts of African-Americans. First uh, demonstration I ever took part in was in high school with my local church group, um, marching in support of the civil rights movement in the South for uh, voting rights. So those kind of things shaped my awareness. So I was a little bit out of step with uh, the uh, activists of the 60s who were much more focused on the Vietnam War and, and then slowly uh, began to expand their interests into civil rights and, and many other issues but not so much the nuclear one. Anyway, I was interested in alternative politics from a very early age. I started by reading books about communism in our public library, and of course they were <laughs> fiercely attacking it. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute. There's a lot of people who call themselves communists, and they're controlling a large part of the world. There must be something else here other than let's do evil and destroy everybody who disagrees with us, or you know, this is actually just slavery. And so on. So that I wound up reading Marx and uh, and then anarchists and, and various other people and finding them interesting. So I found ways to, to discuss these ideas. One of my classes was the European intellectual history class in which uh, it included uh, fiction and philosophy, art and music. And I included um, the Communist Manifesto as one of the core readings. So I thought, well, whether you agree or disagree with it, uh, you really need to know something about this that's been so influential. And the more I read in the Communist Manifesto, the less it looked like what uh, the so-called Marxist governments of the world were advocating. So it was interesting. I would have to get the students beyond the point of just saying, well, communism is dictatorship, so therefore Marx was in favor of dictatorship. And then they would get very enthusiastic about Marx and saying, however, <laughs> there are the roots, including this notion of inevitability um, of what became dictatorship in this ideology. And so I was trying to complexify their understanding of it. And there was a lot of that that actually went on in the left. I was a member of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and very active with them. And we would spend hours and hours trying to refine our statements and say, well, what's our exact position on here? And how can we use the precise wording and, um, and you know, issue a position paper? Of course, those things never got reported. Um, the news has traditionally ignored political statements that are not part of the mainstream. They've, of course, they don't even report on the party platforms much these days. Uh, political content has never been something that Americans wanted to talk about a lot. So then we would go out and have a demonstration, we'd pass out leaflets and so on. And the only thing that would get reported is, was it violent or was it nonviolent? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was no attention whatsoever played to they're against the war. Okay, why are they against the war? What are they saying they'd rather do? What are their notions about proper policy? Nobody asked those questions. Just, are you being violent? Or are you being nonviolent? Very irritating. 
So you had a very thorough background in the political activity that was going on in the 60s, uh, entering a college campus as a professor. I was going to ask you, just as a side note here, you talked about your interest in nuclear disarmament and nuclear arms race and, and those issues. But I happen to know, too, you were uh, – one area of focus you had was science fiction. It strikes me that science fiction writers at the time was one of the places that one could go to to find these issues being addressed much more head-on than they were in the mainstream media. Well, that was particularly true in the 50s when the controversy over uh, bomb testing and the arms race was really lively. And there were uh, a lot of books – uh, trying to describe what the aftermath of a nuclear war would be like. That really uh, wasn't the focus of my attention in the 60s. It wasn't until the 80s when Reagan decided that the thing to do was not to just say, tear down this wall, which is another whole subject. He did not get immediate results, and it wasn't as the results of his saying so that the wall got torn down. But at any rate, um, when he started proposing uh, giving our allies in Europe more missiles, that became a huge political subject, and many people thought, because of the Russian response, that this was going to lead to Armageddon. And there was a period when uh, there was a great deal of discussion of uh, the possibility of nuclear war, and there was a huge resurgence of uh, material being written in science fiction and political thrillers and so on, uh, positing a nuclear war taking place. And that set me off on a 10-year odyssey of trying to read all of this stuff and write about it in my book, Nuclear Holocausts, Atomic War and Fiction. And um, the more expanded edition of that is online. So that became a, a kind of a horrible period in my research life. It was not fun. Um, but it led to all sorts of interesting adventures, which uh, I won't go into here. But much earlier in 1969, my real baptism into leftist politics came when I was elected a delegate to the Chicago Convention of SDS. And we arrived, and uh, several things were apparent very quickly, that the national leadership of SDS had been taken over by a bunch of loonies who were ultimately going to become the weather underground, um, who had very little in common with the broad mass of uh, student activists. SDS was a very decentralized organization. The national headquarters didn't control the political line or the activities or anything, uh, but they acted as if they ought to be able to. And it's not surprising that they turned in on themselves and went underground. That year was the year following the most successful student uprising ever. It was the People's Park Movement in Berkeley. And <laughs> The national organization considered that a, a liberal deviation from the, let's say, correct line of uh, working for a real revolution and so on, and, and just a version. And that was a big shock because this large delegation from Berkeley came ready to celebrate and be congratulated for their position. Instead, they got roundly criticized. This sort of thing goes on in leftist political circles, always has for years. And then there was a very large group from Madison, Wisconsin, who were uh, ardent Maoists and who would, at the slightest opportunity, stand up and chant um, for in support of Chairman Mao and wave copies of the Little Red Book. And that was certainly not the idea that most of us had about what the organization was about. And then there was uh, 
Well, there were there were several factions. I won't go into all the details. It was an interesting time. The only ones that made sense to me were the anarchists. <laughs> and I wound up joining the uh, Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, which at that time was sort of a fragmented thing. It still exists in, in an odd way. Um, so I became pretty undogmatic <laughs> and ready to question all kinds of views while still moving in, in leftist circles. I certainly had views on individual issues, but trying to find an intellectual slot to fit into the student movement, as I knew it, was very multifaceted and open to a lot of different ideas. And the, the notion of one correct line was pretty abhorrent. I think the women's movement in the 70s had a, a very benign effect on that discourse in a way of insisting that all voices be heard, although sometimes some of those discussions got highly intolerant and narrow, too. But Generally speaking, letting uh, people who had not been able to voice their ideas and views voice them and freedom of speech and so on became really central. I think I've always been a political liberal, what is called a progressive these days. Um, it was just that uh, at that time, liberal was a bad word for leftists as well. If you if you weren't a revolutionary, then you were just a damn liberal who was a sellout. And so that term wasn't a term available for um, people who thought like me, but um, I think that's pretty much where I was and pretty much where I've remained. You were steeped in all of this, uh, the politics of the time and protesting against the war and so on. In your academic life, how did some of this play out when it came time to be a professor of English literature at that time? There were a lot of a lot of this uh, political stuff got mixed in with the study of literature. Right. And I was not a professor of English literature, though. I was a professor of literature in an English department. My degree was in comparative literature. My uh, interest in things political and literary started when I was in graduate school. And I wrote a master's thesis um, contrasting uh, Emile Zola's novel, Germinal, which is about a um, union organizing movement at a coal mine in northwestern France in the 19th century uh, with um, Joseph Conrad's novel, Under Western Eyes, which is about a uh, anarchist uh, terrorist and uh, pointing out that the idea of a revolutionary of a leftist was in the 19th century um, public press generally just uh, associated with terrorism with throwing of bombs uh, people in long trench coats and long beards big black hats with broad brims uh, carrying a bomb and <laughs> tucked underneath any kind of attempt to fight for labor rights or restrict uh, business rights was viewed as being the equivalent of terrorism. Zola was really unusual in that here he depicts a novel uh, that approaches the subject in a very multifaceted way. You know, Zola was a famous crusading uh, political guy himself, but he was not by any means uh, orthodox Marxist or anything like that. In fact, uh, the series of novels of Hugo Macquart uh, that he, Germinal is part of, uh, leads up to absolute disaster from the left. And he shows the weaknesses of the union movement as well as his good points. But the important thing was he took it seriously. He actually tried to educate himself and find out what were these people that we call leftists 
thinking and what were the differences among the reference? What is, makes the anarchists uh, different from the socialists and, and uh, what are the people who are purely theoretical versus ones who act and, and what do the actual workers really think who aren't politically educated? Um, it was fascinated me. And so I gave Conrad a pretty thorough bashing and got, got into trouble, of course, with the English professor on my committee who uh, didn't like my putting down Conrad. <laughs> and so I actually succeeded in getting my MA by my advisor saying, oh, this guy's never going to approve anything about this topic that you spent all this time on. Let's just form a new committee. <laughs> yeah. All right. So anyway, um, yeah, I was interested in literature from many angles. Uh, one of the other books that I taught in that same course, along with the Communist Manifesto, was Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, which we discussed in an earlier episode, and was often seen as sort of the ultimate answer to socialism and an attack on you know, what's wrong with that way of thinking and standing up for individual liberty and thinking as and even irrationalism as an ideal, because I thought it was stimulating for students to be able to get really contrasting views. We'd start out with um, the French Enlightenment uh, and then see how different ideas develop. But instead of saying, well, we're getting more and more close to the truth, I wanted to see that you know, political ideology is a really messy area in which there's a lot of different views and you ought to be able to understand where people are coming from. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but uh, what does, uh, say, Lenin mean when he talks about uh, imperialism? And there were all these different kinds of ideas floating around. But I was also interested in, in the personal. The other reason that Notes from Underground fascinated me was because it, it had this portrait of the internal workings of the individual mind of the narrator. And I thought that was something that literature often did very well. And that uh, story is often credited with really having insights into the human mind that were going to be discussed much later by Freud but not really understood at the time that Dostoevsky was writing. So it wasn't as if I had some kind of political agenda and was trying to jog everybody in a particular direction, but I wanted to be able to understand uh, a lot of different points of view and put them up against each other and see what they thought about it. And in the meantime, were there not a lot of people in the field who felt that there there needed to be some parameters for what was acceptable to be teaching and discussing in in a classroom. Well, when I was a young professor, it was certainly it was mostly hostile to it. There was the tradition of close reading that had uh, I was trained in in graduate school, and the notion of depoliticizing literature. In fact, uh, reading literature not in its historical context, which has always fascinated me. Um, interested in the way that um, social movements and economics and political attitudes and so on influence the way that stories are told and what kinds of stories are told. Um, that was considered pretty fringy and, and maybe not the right thing to do. And then without my really being plugged into it, the ground began to shift in literary studies toward deconstruction and other views which, um, although they didn't present themselves at first as being particularly political, wound up having profound political influences. Um, and the dividing line between me and those who thought like me 
And what became a dominant paradigm in higher education literary studies was our attitude toward the actual text that we were studying. It became the most important thing to determine what was wrong politically. And to use the term that really we talk about politically incorrect. Um, so if there is a novel that um, is depicting um, marriage as the only worthwhile goal for a woman, well, then that's something to be thoroughly deplored and discussed at length. Well, you don't have to discuss that for very long before you run out of useful things to say about it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like people today are going to pick up an 18th century novel and say, oh, this is the way I should be as a as a woman. Um, fiction doesn't have that kind of influence. In fact, what we have is a, a shrinking of the audience for the traditional novel, and especially for classics, for older fiction. So it always struck me as kind of delusional that you should build your career on doing a political critique of classics in the past and saying what was wrong with them in terms of their political stance. And it seemed much more useful uh, to be a historian or a sociologist or a political scientist, somebody who actually can directly address these things and just seeing the novels, which are sort of epiphenomena of the political discourse. They're just byproducts. And uh, yet it was seen as a way of being engaged and feeling yourself as being politically progressive, that you devoted your entire career to tearing apart books. So from the student's point of view, of course, this was crazy because for most students, they come in to an English literature class because they've chosen to or any literature class and because they like reading and because they want books and they want to learn how to enjoy them better. And the teacher is up front trying to make them feel ashamed for being taken in by these novelists, telling them, you know, if you're really sophisticated, you'll see through this, this damned author and these scholars over here who are have this critical angle on the whole thing um, understand better the real thing there's a truth beyond it. and that has a certain appeal to young people you know tearing down the the uh, smug assumptions of the establishment to get to the real ugly truth behind it that had appeal for some people but i think for most people it just put them off and said i don't understand why are we reading this book if you're saying it's such a bad book you could tell me in 10 minutes what's wrong with um, discrimination against women as it's depicted in this novel. I don't have to read the novel, mm-hmm. so why bother? It's not central. But that whole point of view took over. It wasn't that I objected that um, leftists had taken over the academy. It was this narrowness of focus. And one of the things that bothered me the most is that what I prize about literature is its ability to surprise me, to take me places where I haven't been before, inside people's minds, into relationships, uh, into landscapes, to experience life differently than I think about it. One of the standard phrases that got used a lot uh, as the political sort of theory-based criticism took hold One of the standard phrases, and I don't remember which of the French scholars is attributed to, was the phrase, always already. The idea that there is an ideological uniformity in back of bourgeois-inspired fiction, and and this was applied outside of fiction, too, for all kinds of things, was um, 
that uh, it's always already something different than you think it is, and that is more oppressive. The term always already, however, to me, uh, described better what was going on in these people's discourse. They pick up a book to read it. They always already know that they're going to be looking for signs of those who should be allowed to speak being silenced, those who should be liberated being oppressed, um, subjects which should be discussed being neglected, um, abhorrent political views being uh, supported, which should be opposed, and so on. And so I also broadened this, and I used to use this analogy of stained glass, stained glass window criticism. And if you were um, a Freudian, you would uh, have this stained glass window that portrays Freud's theater, and you'd lay it down over the text, you know, through it and say, aha, Oedipus complex. And if you were a Marxist, you would lay it down over the text and say, aha, class struggle. So that you always already knew what you're going to find. And it protected you from having to consider things that didn't agree with things that you always already knew and wasn't stimulating in that sense. It's still continuing. And I don't pay much attention to the sort of thing, but I have plenty of friends that are still active in the academy and uh, politically oriented criticism is still considered the most legitimate form of it and uh, people who indulge in different approaches are, are are pretty marginalized for the most part my, my retirement speech was meant to speak up for those people and, and when i was getting ready to retire we'd begun to get some new members of the faculty who um, had different interests and who were really trying to do uh, scholarship that wasn't traditional but it wasn't really uh, this standard checklist of uh trying to find oppression in literature. Now, because there's a whole side note here about the canon, the writers, the great writers that we all need to study in in literature. So, uh, for example, you take uh, Milton. Right. And, um, of course, you know, Milton, a uh, great poet, epic poet, was then and always will be in the canon. But... People would use the word problematic. Right. Now, how is uh, Milton problematic and how is Milton not problematic? <laughs> you chose a bad example for me. I can't stand Milton. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, but see, I think it's a good point. It's a bad example for me, too, because I don't see what the appeal is uh, in Milton and uh, Edmund uh -huh. Spencer. There are a number of these, what we call the Dwems, the dead white European males, who do dominate the canon. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, this is my sideways way of getting to it. You are not talking about uh, the concept of restricting the canon of literature to these people that are considered these uh, traditional great writers, and they, you know, tend to be dead white European males, for lack of a better term. Well, not at all. That My choice of Zola over Conrad <laughs> would illustrate that. I mean, Zola was a vastly popular writer and journalist um, who had a very crude writing style. I described in my thesis his writing with a meat axe, um, but very powerful, mm -hmm. nevertheless. And um, no, I didn't have this narrow idea. I said, well, some books... Um, are considered uh, 
classics in literary circles. But that whole concept of the classic, I tend to be somewhere in the middle on this, in that uh, the whole notion of canon kind of turns me off. On the other hand, if very intelligent people with taste that I admire, who wrote books that I admire, uh, loved and were influenced by an author, then I'm often going to track it down and say, well, what is there in this that inspired these people so much? I remember in graduate school trying to learn something about Ulcian, who is this totally made up Irish bard that is supposed to him, or is he Scots? I forget. Anyways, it's all shrouded in misty romanticism. And since I was studying medieval stuff, I said, well, why do we have all these musical works uh, inspired by Ossian? And and the, the original, the, the poems are, are fakes, and, and they're just dim. They're just, there's nothing there. Sometimes fashions come and go. But I think it's interesting to study those things but I also liked a lot the idea of introducing works that were more marginal. And uh, I taught Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse for many years, still one of my favorite novels. And now, of course, it's standard. There was one time we have five different classes at WSU all teaching To the Lighthouse at the same time. But when I first started teaching, it was thought to be kind of fringy, you know, outside the canon. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the great things that came out of this movement, this sort of politically correct movement, is you are addressing the approach to the text, but one of the advances that was made was opening up the curriculum to a lot of other more interesting pieces that could be studied. Right. Although, you know, that's so much less significant than literature teachers and critics like to think, (laughs) because it certainly doesn't determine what people as a whole read. More and more students go through school without ever reading one single serious literary work. They may read Romeo and Juliet. That's it. Um, literature has lost its place pretty definitively. Uh, we are not the poets who are the legislators of mankind. You know, they're unacknowledged or not. Uh, it, it, literature is... Uh, sidelined itself and of course the the modern novel uh, of recent years has all been about families and internal feelings and problems um an exception i would say are the recent novels from italy uh, by elena ferrante which are getting a tremendous readership which start out by being a very personal history the the um the naples novels that are going to be four. The fourth one hasn't been finished yet. Um, but it starts out as being an interior study of growing up as a, a young girl in a, in a very complex and difficult situation and her relationship with her friend, both of them very, very bright, very pretty, but having a lot of handicaps to struggle against and very different characters. The third volume, Those Who Leave and Those Who Stay, which I'm reading right now, uh, takes it very much into the social sphere and does something that is uh, quite different from the American-dominated novel of today in that it's um, about how difficult it is for workers to stand up to evil bosses, for instance, and uh, how the simple Marxist formulas don't necessarily work, and yet they have good impulses, and, and a very complex study of social relationships and classes um, on the front of the book, uh, there's a, a blurb about this being a, a brilliant depiction of a friendship. <laughs> well, 
yeah, maybe these two friends fight with each other more than they they uh, are friendly, and that's not the heart of the novel as a friendship. There's this tension that has to do with how hard it is to struggle up out of poverty and uh, what the very complex path that this young woman has to follow to um, become the person she is and nudge her her friend who is hugely influential on her in ways that will be less self-destructive. It's a powerful book. But that's an exception. Um, mostly the ideas that society and politics are important get neglected in most modern fiction, and it's pointless for the literary world to continue to act as if debunking some idea that occurs in an 18th or 19th century novel is going to have any noticeable social impact. just doesn't. They'd be much better off spending their spare time after school uh, going out canvassing for a candidate or writing a column for the local newspaper. Paul, thank you for that introduction to where we're at in uh, teaching literature, where you were at in the 60s, and how you came to deliver what was your retirement speech. And I want to just leave it at that for now and pick this topic up next time. All right. So long, Tom. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.